Please be seated. During my family's celebration of my mother and father's 50th uh, wedding anniversary that took place last fall in Greensboro, North Carolina, we were gathered at their, their home and most of our family uh, was there. And my dad was compelled uh, to speak. And he wanted to share from his heart some significant stories uh, from his life, but also he wanted to encourage us with some insights that he has learned over the years about life and how to live the Christian life and his view on just life itself. And the reason that dad was compelled to do this is but now that he's in his 80s, he is sensing that uh, his days on this earth are numbered, and he wanted to leave us with some sagely advice and some stories about his life. He needed to do that, and it was a very healthy thing to do, but we needed to hear what he had to say because he wanted to encourage us to press on and live life to its fullest uh, for the Lord. And As we draw to a close our study of the book of Daniel, we find God doing something very similar in this prophecy. As as Daniel has already received his last vision, and as the book comes to a close, when all is said and done, what did God want to leave with Daniel? All the things that he had learned, all the things that we have learned and studied. What does God want to leave for us? What is his last word in the book of Daniel to us? I think we find it at the very end of the chapter, chapter 12, the very end of the book in verse 13, where the first part of verse 13, where God says to Daniel, but go your way, Daniel, till the end. And that phrase in verse 13 will be our framework to dive into this last chapter. There is an end, and there is a way to that end, and we are to go that way to the end. So that's the three-point sermon outline that God gives us from verse 13 in the book of Daniel. And you'll find a sermon outline on one of the pages there in your bulletin. So let me read Daniel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? 
And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way to the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I ask you to encourage us as we come to this last chapter of Daniel. Show us, O Lord, what you would have for us in these, your last, not your last words, but your last words through the prophet Daniel and to the prophet Daniel. And so, O God, we commit ourselves to you and we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, everything comes to an end at some point, right? Even our study of the book of Daniel comes to an end. And much of what we've looked at in Daniel is is in light of the end, not the end of the book, but the end of the age as we've been focusing in much of Daniel about human history, a broad brushstroke of human history, even until the last day. And just a couple of weeks ago, as we were in chapter 11, we looked there at the flow of history that is being characterized by conflict over and over again. There's enmity amongst men. Why? Because there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And so as we looked at chapter 10, some weeks uh, later, we saw that there is this great cosmic battle that has taken place in the heavenlies between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And that really is the backdrop of all the conflict in various forms that we see in our day today. And as we were working through this uh, 11th chapter of Daniel, we came to the end, verses uh, 36, uh, through the, the end of the chapter, verse 45, My understanding of that is it's the culmination of all the conflict in this final conflict at the end of the age. And so I understand this last part of chapter 11 being about the time of the final Antichrist that comes to wage war in a brief but intense period of persecution against Jesus' people. We, We see in Daniel chapter 12 then, in verses 1 through 4, the outcome of that conflict at the end of chapter 11. And the outcome really is pretty amazing. In fact, in verse 1, we find the term time of trouble, and it's referring to the same thing 
that we read in chapter 11, verse 40, the time of the end. So the time of the end will be a time of trouble. And then verse 1 goes on to describe the character of this time of the end, this time of trouble, that it will be like none other in human history. It will be an intense, the, the greatest intensity of persecution that has ever occurred will take place at the end of the age. And so as Daniel is looking well ahead into the future to this time of trouble, this time of the end, as we are looking well into the future to this time of trouble, this time of the end, what should be on our minds? Despair? No. Hope. So I think Daniel chapter 12 is about hope in light of the greatest persecution against the kingdom of God that is to come. And there are four reasons for this hope. And I just want to walk us through that as we look at chapter 12. In verse 1, we learn that God's people will be protected. Michael, the archangel that we first read about in chapter 10, is there in that first verse in chapter 12. And he is the representative of Christ. He is the one charged to care for God's Old Testament people, God's New Testament people, God's people. There's one people of God, right? Throughout the Old and New Testament. And so we can be assured then that God will be faithful to care for his people in all of the various occurrences of conflict and at every time in their life. God watches over his people. And in particular, chapter 12, even in the greatest struggle, God will watch over his people. So, brother and sister, you and me can be confident that God is watching over us as we live our life and as we experience trials and tribulations and difficulties. He's watching over us as we experience the good times as well. Number two, he not only protects his people, but he delivers his people. We also find this in verse 1. The elect in all ages will be delivered. But this particular focus of chapter 12 is the elect that will undergo this final great time of tribulation and trial. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, there uh, Paul teaches that when, that when Jesus comes back, that those who are living will be caught up with them. And the them there in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is those who, the, the elect who have been raised from the dead and caught up into heaven. And those living at the time will be caught up with Christ in the clouds, the text says. And so God will deliver his people, be his people who have died. We'll look at that in just a moment. But even the people living in this greatest time of trial will be delivered. And so we need to ask the question, who are God's elect? And the text tells us, in verse 1, that, that the elect are those whose names are written in the book. And as soon as I see written in the book, I immediately go to a passage like Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, where there we learn that only those names that are written in the book of life will be ushered in to heaven. If your name's not in the book, you don't get in. It's what we learn in Revelation uh, 21. And so this is 
those names written in the book are really the true people of God, the elect of God, those that have been delivered from their sin and united to Christ in saving faith and have been given a new life and have an inheritance, and that inheritance being heaven. And here's the neat thing, that if your name is written in the book of life, if you've been united to Christ, if you possess saving faith, Satan cannot get his hands on you. He can never destroy you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 reminds us of the doctrine of unconditional election. What a precious doctrine. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God protects his people. God delivers his people, and God also delivers his people who have died and are buried. The Scripture teaches in numerous places the doctrine of the general resurrection, and that is that all who have died in all ages at Christ's second coming will be raised bodily. Some will be raised to everlasting a resurrection of life, everlasting life. Some will be raised, as we read in in, uh, passages like uh, John uh, chapter 5 and verses 28, will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. So life and judgment. So those who died in the Lord, those who died outside of the Lord, all will be raised. And verse 2 seems to allude to this. That there will be those who are sleeping, says verse 2. That is, those who have died and, are in, and their bodies are resting in the grave. And they will be raised bodily from the dust or from the grave. And some will be raised to everlasting life. And some will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt, verse 2 tells us. But the text specifically says, in verse 2, many of those who are sleeping will be raised. And if the general resurrection is in view here, what does it say many and not all? Because, you know, the Bible teaches that all will be raised. And I think there's an answer. Because verse 2 is not denying the general resurrection. In fact, it assumes the general resurrection. But it's looking at a special population that will be raised from the grave, and it's those who died during this last period of great, intense uh, persecution. And here's the point. Not only will those who live through this last period of time of trouble, not only will they be delivered, but those who died because of this time of trouble, they too will be delivered, as well as all the saints of God who have died. And to what are they raised? Here we find a statement of the ultimate outcome for God's people, God's people's destiny. And what is it? The text tells us that they are raised to everlasting life, verse 2, that they are raised to shine like the brightness of the day, 
that they are raised to shine like the stars forever and ever. We read that in verse 3. And this is our destiny. This is our outcome. And what a destiny we have as the people of God. God protects his people. God delivers his people living at the time of Christ's second coming. God delivers his people who have died and even those who died during that last great period of conflict. But there's a fourth reason for hope that's a hard truth, but reason for hope nonetheless. And here it is. Those who die in their sin will also be raised, but they will be raised to suffer shame and everlasting contempt as we read. And in particular, those who die outside of the Lord, outside of a a saving relationship with Jesus during this final period of intense persecution, as well as those who have died throughout human history that have not had a saving relationship with Christ, will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. They were born in shame, total depravity. They lived in shame. They lived a life in rebellion against God. They, they were still in their sin. They died in shame. And they will be raised to experience shame for all eternity. Why? Because their shame was never covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a hard truth, isn't it? But it's the truth of Scripture. And they will experience everlasting contempt. You know what it is to have contempt or to feel the contempt of another. This everlasting contempt is God's hatred, God's wrath, God's condemnation, God's judgment against their sin and against them still being in their sin. And that is the destiny of those who die and are buried outside and never come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's the hope in this for you and me. God is so serious about delivering his people that he is going to condemn those who would harm God's people and consign them to torment in hell. It's a hard way to look at this passage, but God is going to destroy sin and Satan, and he is going to cast the unbeliever into hell and free God's people from forever from the tyranny of the wicked. So God gave four reasons for hope in light of what is coming in the future. And then in verse 4, we find God telling Daniel, Daniel, shut up the words and, and seal the prophecy. The prophecy has come to an end. And now Daniel was told, you preserve this prophecy, Daniel, because there are future generations of my people who need to read this and to consider the truths and the prophecy that I have revealed to you. So preserve it for future generations. But notice in verse 4 that there are a group of people who shall run to and fro 
In other words, there are people running around trying to gain knowledge, trying to understand the future, even from God's perspective, but they're frustrated. They're frustrated because they search for truth in vain. They may, you know, knowledge may increase and that worldly knowledge may increase, but that worldly knowledge is not for heavenly game. And this brings up an interesting characteristic of the Scriptures. The Scriptures reveal to those who have the eyes and the heart to understand it, and the Scriptures conceal from those who are hardened to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13 Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The elect of God have been granted the spiritual discernment to read and and comprehend and understand the truths written in, in His Word. And then we have the illumination of the Spirit. Not saying we understand everything perfectly, but we're able to understand who God is, how to be saved. We're able to read and benefit from His Word. What a blessing. But then listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, that is the person who remains in their sin, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually Discern. The natural person runs around seeking truth in all the wrong places because that's all that they can do. Their ignorance of truth will serve as evidence in the last day to further condemn them as they stand before the judge and receive their just due, his wrath and condemnation. And here's the hard truth. God is glorified in the salvation of the elect. And he is glorified in the damnation of the reprobate. That truth is what the scriptures teach it. Are you running to and fro? Grasping at trying to understand God's ways, yet not having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The only people, there are only two kinds of people in the world, the saved and the unsaved. The only people who can benefit from the Word of God are those who have received God's mercy and grace who have a new life, a new eyes, and a new heart, and a new mind, who've been regenerated, who've been united to Christ, and who accept that word as it is, the words of the life. One lesson that we learn here is this. Gratitude for God's rich mercy. He has enabled us to understand His word. And as we look to the future, because... Of, our, of, of the work of God the Holy Spirit in illuminating our, our, our minds, our eyes, our hearts to understand this. We're able to have hope as we face the future. Secondly, there's a second lesson here. God is sovereign in 
his time table. God is sovereign in his plan. At verse 5, we find that, that Daniel's vision now includes two other uh, beings, uh, each standing on one side of the Tigris River there where this vision is taking place. And then there's the, the, the divine being, the man in linen. Have you understand that, theophany or Christophany or just an, an angel? But he's there hovering above uh, the river. And, and one of those, those beings on the, on the bank asked the question, how long shall it be to the end of wonders? Verse 6. The understandable question, isn't it? Or rather, I believe Daniel asked that question. And it's an understandable question. And there the man in linen raises up both of his hands. He gives a solemn oath uh, to the one sitting on the throne in heaven, swearing that his answer will be truthful. And his answer is the same phrase that we read in chapter 7 and verse 25. There were where the, the, uh, the great end of the matter is discussed in, in chapter 7, where Christ comes and wins victory over the final enemy. Here, this man in linen answers the question, how long? With this phrase, a time times and a half time. And really... There's much debate about what that phrase means and many rabbit trails that we could go on that are important. But for the sake of time, I just simply want to point out, which is we've already looked at this back in chapter 7, and that it, it, it points to a definite period of time, and that period of time has been shortened. And then we look further that not only is, is the overall period of time for this intense persecution, time, times, and a half, a definite period that is shortened, but even the most intense part of that with regards to persecution is, short, uh, is shortened. Verses 11 and 12 are very, very difficult to understand. Verse 11 seems to be pointing back to the second century, to Antiochus Epiphanes and, and the great persecution that took place there. And then we find uh, in verse 12, that 45 days was added to the 1290, 1,335. So what is that all about? And some commentators believe they're simply saying that even though the intense persecution was great in Antiochus's day and the people of God really suffered, that in this last great, great time of trouble, the intensity will be even more. But it will be shortened. And the point that I want to make is what is the point Jesus makes in Matthew twenty four twenty two, And if those days had not been short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And I would just encourage us that one lesson that we have seen throughout Daniel, but also in this last chapter, is that, is that God has a sovereign plan. He has a sovereign timetable. He has a sovereign purpose, and we need to trust him. Dr. Ferguson writes, when the powers of darkness have done their worst against the kingdom of God, and the truth of God has been set a final devaluation, God will act. We can trust him. And so in light of the end, God's people are called to be hopeful, to trust him with his plan, with his timetable, but there's a second question that is asked in verse 9. Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? In other words, 
what is the Christian life going to be like as your people live in these difficult days leading up to this time of trouble at the end? And the first thing that we would say, or I would say, is that you can count on opposition. <laughs> so warfare against God's people will continue throughout human history. And we believe, at least I believe, that it will culminate in this final time of trouble at the end. And we should expect some level of difficulty in our day with this spiritual warfare. And the reason I say that is that look at verse 10. The wicked will act wickedly. And I think that characterizes the fact that, that we can count on spiritual warfare in our day because the wicked will act wickedly. And secondly, God has a sovereign purpose in his people going through these times of trial and persecution. Notice the contrast before us. The wicked will act wickedly. Uh, they have no capacity to understand God's ways, as we talked about. Their, their life is one of futility, frustration, emptiness, lack of meaning and purpose. They're, they're rebels fleeing God, and yet God's people are given wisdom. God's people are giving, given insight to understand some of His purpose And one thing we understand is that God brings his people into these various trials to sanctify them. The text says to refine and purify them. We remember James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. This Romans 8.28, we use it all the time, but it really is a profound truth, isn't it? All of this suffering, these various trials that we endure, God has a reason for them. We encounter the world living by faith. And God is working to refine us and purify us in these trials to make us more like Jesus. But there's a, there's a third aspect uh, to this that we expect opposition. We understand that God has a sovereign purpose in these trials. And this all comes down to the reality that Life demands perseverance. It means that, that we need to seek the Lord for, the, for grace to press on in living the Christian life. You know, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was taking a bike ride. I hadn't been on my bike for about six weeks, recovering from surgery. And I decided on this one morning that I was going to go up a hill that for me is, is pretty steep and pretty long. Is that hot, humid Friday morning a couple of weeks ago. And about halfway up this hill, I realized things were not going well. My legs felt like rubber. Um, The air was so heavy that I could hardly breathe. My heart rate was up almost, for me, almost off the scale. And and I kept going, but the whole way, I fought quitting. I wanted to stop and just turn around. I don't know why I didn't. I guess I'm just weird. 
but I just kept going. I mean, I knew there was an end, but it seemed like the end would never get there. And I finally reached the end with much relief, having fought quitting the entire way up, turned around and went downhill, got, got cooled off. You know, the Christian life is like that, isn't it? Not, not all the time. But sometimes it feels like we get hit by a wave, we stand up, and guess what? We get hit by a bigger wave. And sometimes the Christian life comes down to just keep going. I heard someone say to a Christian, just keep falling forward. That's, that's, that's what it feels like. Press on as hard as it gets. The confession of faith that we read this morning is about perseverance. Pressing on. God persevering us. The New Testament passage Dan read earlier from Jude is about persevering. Keep believing in Jesus and loving Him and, and obeying Him. And why do we do that? Because really, we're able to persevere because ultimately God is the one who perseveres us. He is the one who is at work. Listen to this, John six thirty seven through 39. Jesus saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Isn't that encouraging? This is Jesus speaking about you and me. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure Paul says, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. You see, this way that we are in Go your way till the end. This way that we are in is a life of persevering faith, isn't it? But God said, Daniel, go. In other words, Daniel, live. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 13, the same phrase is used. Daniel, go, go your way. Live. live. Live this persevering faith, Daniel. And you've got to ask the question, why? What, what are the purposes in you and me uh, living this, this persevering faith? Well, one reason is this, is for our good. And verse 12 tells us that there is blessing for those who wait, who persevere. And in verse 13, we find the, the promise of rest and an allocated place or inheritance at the end of the day. And of course, that inheritance is heaven itself, isn't it? And so for our own good, we, we persevere in faith, pressing on to the end. Let me read this prayer by John Calvin. Grant, Almighty God, since Thou pr- proposest to us no other end than that of constant warfare during our whole life, and subjectest us to many cares until we arrive at the goal of this temporary race course, grant, I pray Thee, that we may never grow fatigued. May we ever be armed and equipped for battle, and whatever the trials by which thou dost prove us, may we never be found deficient. May we always aspire towards heaven with upright souls, and strive with all our endeavors to attain that blessed rest which is laid out for us in heaven. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's a prayer I need to pray every day.
and I would commend it to you. But there's a greater purpose for our persevering in faith. It's not only for our good, but it's also for God's glory. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And that was for Paul's good. But then he says this, to him be the glory forever and ever. You see, at the end of the day, we persevere in faith for God's glory. When we get up in the morning, our resolve should be to live for God for his glory. When we stand against the laws and institutions in our culture that are unbiblical and oppose God, we should stand and respond for God's glory. And when we suffer at the hands of men who are wicked and would seek to undo us, we should respond and live for God's glory. When we face death ourselves, we should do so for God's glory. What does God want of us? In light of all that has been said in the book of Daniel, I think we find it right here in verse 13. But go your way, but live in persevering faith till the end, and bring me much glory. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our desire to please you in the very manner of our life. We would join Calvin in praying that it's a task that is far greater than our ability, but it's not far greater than your grace. So, oh God, we plead with you to attend us daily with your mercy and grace Strengthen faith that we might persevere. Work your persevering work in us. That we might glorify you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen.